In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. It's always a good sign when a week before a big election that could shape the future of a country, someone tries to kidnap and break the kneecaps of the third most powerful person in that country. Flanked by security and staff, Nancy Pelosi left her home to go visit her husband, Paul, in hospital. Police now allege the suspect broke into the house alone, armed with a hammer, zip ties, and duct tape. You probably don't need me to tell you this, but things in the United States seem dangerously close to going off the rails entirely. Next week, in the midterm elections, both the House and the Senate will be up for grabs. Access to abortion is obviously on the ballot. So are inflation and health care and climate change and all the usual polarizing issues. But is this a bigger election than even those topics? Sometimes, before a really important election, or even just an election that a politician really wants to win, a candidate will declare that democracy itself is on the ballot. This year, in America, that doesn't appear to be hyperbole. There are many Republican candidates running and expecting to win who refuse to acknowledge the winner of the 2020 presidential election. And they have plans that they've announced to challenge basically any results that don't go their way. Some of them are running for positions that would put them in control of how those votes are counted. So what do Canadians need to know about America's midterm election? What happens if Republicans take control of the House or the Senate or both? How quickly could our relationship with our neighbor change if things go sideways? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. James McCartan is the Washington correspondent for the Canadian press. Hello, James. Hello there. Usually as a Canadian podcast, we wouldn't cover the U.S. midterms. Um, But here we are, and it's the second episode we've done on them. Before we get into the details, maybe just in broad strokes, as a Canadian reporter in Washington, what's so important about this election? Yeah, that's a good question. It, it's, I, I mean, it's important for a number of reasons, but I think it's also important to consider that it's uh, it's a good show, right? It, it's, you know, politics I, I've found down here is very much bread in the bone. People People tend to live and breathe it, even when they are kind of removed from it. You don't actually encounter a lot of cynicism these days uh, in terms of people opting out of the system, right? They are engaged. They are plugged in. 
Now, admittedly, over the last seven years, it's been kind of a hard thing to avoid. And it's been, it's been, you know, in many respects, kind of a slow motion train wreck. And so uh, it's compelling. Uh, there's there's no getting around that it is it is riveting and so I, I think right out of the gate you have to acknowledge that it's it's good ratings it's good entertainment uh it, it's hard to look away from in terms of importance uh, that's a big part of it right the stakes seem higher than they've ever been you know there's this persistent message that you hear from politicians both in Canada and the US now i think with some regularity that this is the most what's coming up is the most important election you'll ever participate in we are talking about issues like guns we're talking about abortion we're talking about crime we have a landscape now where there is a heightened threat assessment from you know, Department of Homeland Security and some other agencies that pay attention to these things. This is all in the post-January 6th uh, world that we're living in. And so it's definitely, it definitely feels more consequential, right? It feels like um, the vote is no longer a thing where you, you cast your ballot, your person wins or they don't win. You don't necessarily feel that connected to the system. Now, you know, you cast your ballot for someone and you have to think about, is this person dedicated to my interests? Is this person dedicated to the country's interests? Or is this someone who, who, given the opportunity, wants to burn the system down? I mean, that's a real question that people are asking themselves in this country. And I think that that alone tells you that, yeah, the, 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 there's a lot uh, at stake for people in this country. And because it's the United States, people around the world. I can only imagine, and I do want to come back later to the uh, politics as entertainment and, and horse race angle, because I think there's there's a lot there. But first, as I said in the intro, which you, which you didn't hear, you know, there are the really polarizing issues. Uh, abortion, obviously, is huge. You mentioned guns, uh, health care, climate policy. All of that is on the ballot. But one thing that I've heard from many, uh, mostly Democrat politicians, and a ton of media members covering this, is that democracy is on the ballot. A lot of people have said that many times. It's generally hyperbole. Is it this time? It sure feels like it's not. It sure feels like that's a real thing, right? Um, You know, we collectively survived four years of Donald Trump in the White House, but it is hard to get past the sense and I think this is true on both sides of the of the aisle of the political divide that another four years of Donald Trump could very well be existential, right? It, it, for the system as it stands, the, <laughs> the, the these are you know serious people talk about these issues and they talk about them with straight faces. That that, that yeah, there there is a real danger. That the system, which I think it's important to understand, there's a tremendous number of people in this country who feel deserted by that system, who feel abandoned by it. And so for them, it's it's not that much of a reach to turn for them to turn their backs on it. It hasn't worked out for them over the course of the last 30 years, uh, and they are struggling to survive, quite literally. And so, you know, where is the incentive for them to stick with or want to stick with um, for altruistic reasons, for purely rhetorical reasons, a system that, as far as they're concerned, has ignored them, has um, disadvantaged them, has has left them by the side of the road while it carries, you know, the 1% and the connected and the, the, the elites. In Canada, we like to think of them as the Laurentian elites, right? The people that 
are widely resented for having influence, for having education, for uh, ignoring the needs um, and the priorities of of this group that, you know, Hillary Clinton famously called the deplorables in the 2016 campaign. You know, when you when you think about what could have happened on January 6th, I, I don't think most people really yet have come to terms with how close the U.S. came to to losing some pretty fundamental pillars of the system then. So in a, in a kind of a post-January 6th world, I think we have to assume that democracy is in serious trouble. So a week before the vote then, just quickly, because we're not going to get into the the X's and O's of this entire playbook, but for Canadians who have been lucky enough not to have to uh, pay attention to this on a daily basis, um, which party is favored to control the House and the Senate? I know, uh, regardless, Joe Biden will be president, but his whole agenda depends on the next week, really. Uh, it's been an interesting few months, for sure. Um, you know, in, it, it, first of all, the midterms always carry with them uh, a lot of baggage for the party that's in the White House, right? Um, it, it's become now a pretty standard pattern that the party that's in the White House uh, takes a beating in the midterms. It's It seems to be part of the sort of whole check and balance system that exists down here. So that was already baked in. And the Democrats, you know, there's a tremendous amount of dissatisfaction with Joe Biden. Anybody who, who you know, has ever seen him perform in a news conference or an announcement, whatever it may be, he, he comes across as fragile. He comes across as old. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan was a real low point in his presidency. There are a lot of people. And of course, there's there's post-pandemic stuff, right? There's the economic issue. There's the price of gas. Um, crime has has the statistics do bear out that crime has been on the rise as well. This is all, you know, grist for the mill for the Republicans, right? It's in many respects, it's sort of a perfect political storm for the Republicans. So there were a lot of headwinds coming in. Uh, as far as the Democrats were concerned. And then along came this Roe v. Wade decision, which really gave them something to talk about and gave them a, a, a really compelling argument to to take into the summer, which was, you know, you want to put the Republicans in Congress you and if abortion rights are important to you, you better say goodbye. So they had there was a real sort of momentum swing in the middle of the summer that has now petered out. Abortion seems to have been priced in and you're seeing the the resentment and the frustration with things like gasoline prices, with inflation, uh, with all of these economic consequences of the pandemic, there's still very much a, a labor shortage down here. And, and so these are all things that people see on a daily basis, right? They experience them. There is nothing worse for an incumbent political leader than... Um, you know, price pressures, anything that hits the pocketbook. That's that's the that's kind of the gold standard in politics. If you have a compelling economic argument to make against the other guy, you are in really good shape. Right. And so the cards have always really been sort of leaning the Republicans way. And we're now seeing that, I think, come to the fore. We've just seen a number of districts on the House side, uh, Cook Political Report, which is one of the big um uh, media outlets down here that's very granular when it comes to looking at this stuff. They've taken 10 districts and moved them collectively, not onto the Republican side, but closer to, right? There's a couple of the a couple of districts, you know, in places like California that are supposed to be solidly Democratic that are now very much either in the toss-up category 
leaning Democratic, all of that points to weakness, right? Kathy Hochul in in, uh, in New York, who who uh, uh, took over for Andrew Cuomo. In, in New York State, a Democratic governor is supposed to be, you know, pretty safe bet. And, and she's in a tight race. So those are things that tell you the Democrats are in trouble across the board. Um, so the House, I think, is probably a foregone conclusion. I think the Republicans are going to control the House. The Senate is is where things are very interesting because it's already 50-50, right? 48 Democrats and two independents who caucus with the Democrats, 50 Republicans. And then, of course, the um, the vice president who breaks the ties. Um, that it, there are, you know, somewhere between five and seven, maybe eight different uh, states where uh, the race for the Senate is very, very close within the margin of error. Some very interesting candidates on both sides, including a number of folks who are Donald Trump backers and who have been endorsed by the former president. And and these are races, these are toss-up races that are tremendously close. They 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 really shouldn't be. And the Republicans would probably be running away with a lot of them if it weren't for the fact that some of these candidates are very divisive. You know, J.D. Vance in Ohio, um, Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania, Herschel Walker, of course, in Georgia. Um, all of these candidates uh, have a tremendous amount of baggage and are weighing down the Republicans to a certain extent, and yet are still very much in this thing, right? So it's, it's, uh, it's anybody's game at this point. So let's talk now. That was a great primer, uh, by the way, especially for Canadians who who haven't followed it. And those are the Senate races that I guess we'll be looking very closely at. But I want to talk now um, about Election Day specifically. And maybe we'll start when people are at the polls. You mentioned earlier that Homeland Security has elevated a threat level. Uh, you know, given what we just saw at Nancy Pelosi's house, uh, the attack on her husband, Violence must be a real concern. What are the chances of of some kind of violence on election day at the polls? It certainly feels to to a watcher from afar that you know things are dangerously close to getting out of control. You know, it, it's there's a, for whatever reason we all want to think about these things as as being organized, right? Like January sixth was an example of something that that had a, a kind of a uh, a siege feel to it, right? It felt like it was orchestrated and, and organized. Uh, that is not a serious threat as far as the the folks that I've spoken to about what may ensue. No one is particularly concerned about a kind of a, a, an uprising, if you will. What concerns them is exactly, I think, what we saw uh, play out in San Francisco. You know, these individual actors who are frustrated, who are, um, you know, maybe having mental health issues, whatever it may be, they are the real danger. And and I think that's what you see reflected in a lot of the, um, the notices from, you know, the Capitol Police and other sort of larger police departments and Department of Homeland Security, FBI, that type of thing. Everybody is operating in an environment where the threat is elevated. Uh, we're not on the verge of a crisis necessarily. But what we are, I think, dealing with is a snowball that's rolling down a hill and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, that's that's kind of that's what it feels like right now. It feels like we're in a, a, a stage uh, of development and nobody quite knows where the bottom of the hill is. Nobody quite knows how big that snowball is going to get. And nobody really has a good sense of what's in its way. Uh, and that's the that's, I think, the sense that you get. There's a tremendous sense. I wouldn't call it 
uh, fear or panic or concern. You know, you talk to voters and they're all pretty much going about their lives and they're casting their ballots. And and I've spoken to people uh, in North Carolina and Georgia and elsewhere who who say, you know, I'm, I, I don't think we're going to see another January 6th. What I do think we're going to see potentially is more of that type of thing. Um, and, and then I think you're going to start to see uh, the sort of the walls around these people, the Nancy Pelosi's of the world, start to be a little bit more fortified. Clearly now, you know, she's going to have more security at her house than she did before when she even when she's not there. And, and none of that bodes well. Right. That's all just part of this snowball process, unfortunately. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. On election night itself, um, once the polls close and the results start to roll in, that was one of the big issues with 2020 was that um, because of the number of people voting by mail, the early results all sort of trended towards Trump and the Republicans. And then, of course, as those ballots were were counted, uh, it trended back towards Joe Biden. What do we know about what we should expect this time? Would it be something similar? I think so. I think so. I mean, I think as much as they would like to be able to count early ballots, absentee ballots, and that type of thing more quickly, um, you know, in a lot of jurisdictions, the law still is that they're not allowed to start counting those until election night, right? I, I think in Georgia, there is, I think, a, a real push to get in there ahead of time because Georgia has one of these, you know, statewide election law landscapes where the lines get really, really long and the process can be really, really arduous on election day itself. So people tend to vote more early down there. And I don't know that we have a clear sense that they are prepared for particularly midterms, right? Because midterms aren't supposed to be uh, like a presidential. They're not supposed to have the kind of turnout that we're already seeing in a lot of places. This is going to be it's definitely going to blow away 2018 and it's going to it's going to approach 2020 levels. So, yeah, I think we are in for uh, another very familiar sort of situation the one saving grace is that we don't have a Donald Trump uh, who's going to be able to stand up on election night and claim victory. But won't some of those mini Trumps, some of those Republicans around the country, Carrie Lake, as you mentioned, uh, who knows about Herschel Walker or whatever, this is what I want to get at next, is is won't some of those people refuse to concede or claim victory early? Oh, yeah. I think so. I think oh, so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I really do. And, and the other thing that's interesting about that, too— this is something that a lot of Canadians probably don't understand. Americans vote for everybody, right? They, there's an old joke about, you know, I wouldn't vote for that. I wouldn't elect that guy dog catcher. Well, it's, it's you know, they kind of do down here. They vote for for judges. They vote for, I was looking at the California ballot, actually, just uh, just the other day. They are, uh, there are U.S. Senate candidates. There are governor candidates, lieutenant governor, secretary of state, controller, treasurer, attorney general. These, particularly secretary of state, these are people who orchestrate the elections, right? Arizona has a guy running for secretary of state who is a, an avowed election denier. 
So, yeah, there's an issue for sure on November 9th or the night of November 8th. But then there's this even bigger issue of 2024. And if you have a whole bunch of people in these in these state houses who are in a position to say to reject outright the outcome of a 2024 presidential election, one in which potentially Donald Trump could be the Republican nominee, that's quite a an alarming uh, situation, potentially. The last thing that I want to ask you about is the climate from this going forward into 2024. And in particular, you know, with reference to what you brought up right off the top, which is, you know, the way the way that this is, and it is, entertainment, at least for the networks that are using it for clicks and views and subscribers. And, and I guess that's fine, but how much of that pushes people into their two separate camps and furthers the kind of breakdown in uh, actually caring about the issues as opposed to my team or your team? And, and the reason I ask this is because, and, and I don't, you can agree with this or disagree if you want, I feel like we see more and more of that up here and we're always just a couple of years behind the United States when it comes to political trends. So that stuff worries me. For sure. I'm I'm the same way. I, I've been noticing for years, uh, you can, I, I don't want to overstate the case, but you can certainly uh, see a pattern where something uh, develops in the U.S. and then over a period of time, you tend to start to see it manifest itself in Canada. I feel like the Freedom Convoy, as much as there was weird, uh, there, there was something strange going on there. I, I don't think we have clear answers. It may have been misinformation. It could have been foreign powers, you know sort of trying to capitalize. I mean, Justin Trudeau is a, is a, you know, he's an icon around the world as a progressive leader, right? And so he's a, he's got a target on his back, not only in Canada, but elsewhere as, as someone who could be valuable as, um, you know, suffering a, a, a bad defeat. Uh, so it, it, in some respects, that wasn't surprising. But I agree with you that there is, I think, a bit of a lag time, but you do eventually see these things manifest uh, in Canada. Uh, 2018, I was covering the midterms. We were, it was not anywhere near the the kind of the, the scope it is now. But um, I went out and started talking to voters in Southern Virginia. And one of the things I noticed right away was when you spoke to people who were supporters of Donald Trump, they were um, invariably parroting back talking points. These were just ordinary people. These were not political operatives. These were not people who were themselves, you know, they weren't campaign volunteers or anything like that. They were just people out shopping, right? Running errands. And you would hear these sound bites from them that were absolutely verbatim from uh, things that had been talked about the previous few nights on Fox News. Uh, it, it was, it was, chilling, really, to hear exactly the same sorts of terms of praise. You know, Brett Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court Justice, was a big issue at the time. He was going through a confirmation hearing. And you would hear these conspiracy theories about, oh, this is all just a, uh, you know, it's it's an attempt to uh, sabotage this. It's all, I don't believe any of it. You know, the, there's there's these little tiny kind of kernels of of truth that, that folks would latch on to and say this this is evidence that he this is all made up and et cetera, et cetera. I think that right there is probably a pretty indication that a pretty clear indication that your democracy is not healthy. So uh you know democracy to go back to your question about is democracy on the ballot, 
democracy doesn't exist unless people want to sort of take part in it, right? And it's one thing when voters will turn out or won't turn out, you know, 30%, 40% turnout rate. That's nothing terribly surprising to Canadians. We often have that problem. Um, but I think the bigger issue is if people aren't participating in in the, like they're, they're voting, but they're not voting, you know, with their heads. They're They're sort of voting out of some other motivation. They're voting for someone because they want to spite the other side. They're voting for someone because they want to spite the system. They want to burn the system down. Um, uh, that, to me, again, to go back to the snowball analogy, that is a snowball that's picking up speed. And, and that's the scary thing, I think. James, thank you so much for this. Really in-depth. Appreciate it. Anytime. Appreciate it. James McCartan in Washington for the Canadian Press. That was the big story. I know that some people get upset when we cover American politics on this show. And frankly, I'm sorry. There is no other country in the world whose elections impact the actual lives of Canadians as much as the United States. More than that, whatever happens down there seems to find its way up here sooner rather than later. It might take a year or two or four, but the political trends in our neighbor to the south always show up during our own elections. So listen, I'm not asking you to care that much about American politics. I understand the desire to tap out of it. But just be aware of what's going on and, and how close we might be to something pretty bad. You can find The Big Story at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can also talk to us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. You can write us emails complaining about our biased coverage of the American election. It's hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And you can call and leave a voicemail, 416-935-5935. You can find this podcast wherever you get podcasts. And you can listen to it on your smart speaker by saying, play the Big Story podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.